0: Have any of you ever gotten about halfway through a project and then you just wonder if you just bit off more than you could chew? So that happened to me about 10 o'clock last night. I was working on this thing for today. and Okay, where where am I going? You know, I'm going to go for it anyway. We'll just see how it works out. You'll let me know at the end here. But um, just over the last, oh gosh, well, it's been the last few months. But as I've been watching more and more of... Uh, just news in general and um, just the uh, 24-7 news cycle and you tune in and the talking heads that you read, there's there's a trend that is getting more pronounced. And I thought it was important for us maybe to address a couple of things because we are trying to live in this world and we need to find our way through. And the world is getting funkier and funkier. The world just seems to be getting more and more confused it's hard to know what information is correct anymore. It's hard to know what anybody is saying anymore. It's, it's really just difficult to just keep abreast, keep pace, and feel like you have enough information to make good decisions. Now, if any of you have been around here long enough, you know that I'm always going on about the importance of experience over knowledge, intellectual knowledge, cognitive knowledge. That the deepest spiritual experience can't be understood. It can't be intellectualized. It can only be experienced. It's something that we just have to live through and get to the other side and find out what we're convinced of. Even if we can't cognitively, intellectually explain it to another person, we just know that we know. And so the deepest spiritual maturity, the deepest wisdom, if you will, is letting go of our need for certainty letting go of our need to understand everything, to have everything down under glass and figured out to the last jot and tittle, but to find a way to embrace the unknowing, find a way to embrace the paradox that life is always presenting us. When we can do that, then we are ripe for kingdom. When we can do that, then we are entering into the place that Jesus is talking about. But at the same time, we live in the real world, don't we? And we live in this world between heaven and earth, as the Jews would say. And we need to find a balance between our head and our heart, between our intellect and our experience, between mindfulness, pure presence in the now, and our ability to do some abstract thinking, our ability to think through things. We're trying to find this balance. And Jesus speaks of this balance. Take a look at the first little quote there from the Bible, Matthew 10, 16. Now this is Jesus as he's preparing to send his his 12 closest friends and disciples out. He's going to send them out. He has a whole list of instructions for them. And he tells them, hey, first of all, don't go into the Gentiles, don't go into Samaria, stay here in in, in Israel and speak to the lost sheep of Israel. He has a lot of uh, instructions about what baggage they should take and shouldn't take and how they should get paid, how they shouldn't get paid. But then he says at verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheeps in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Interesting comment by Jesus, isn't it? Now the serpent, the snake, going all the way back to Eden, has the cultural mythic reputation of being wise and, and uh <laughs> Not necessarily in a good way, but being shrewd, being cunning, being very intelligent, being able to use words to be able to manipulate and get things done. And of course, the dove was one of the clean animals that the Jews understood as an animal of sacrifice, an animal that was completely innocent, compliant, willing, simple. And if you take a look at the words that are used here, both in the Greek and the Aramaic, the word that is translated here as shrewd, or as the King James would have it, wise, right? Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The word actually means thoughtful. It means discreet. It can mean intelligent. It can mean practical or having practical skills. Cautious. And it doesn't mean deceitful, so it's not going into that area, but we would probably say it means being smart. Be smart. As you go out into this world, out among them English. I saw witness, didn't you? Going out among them English. You know, be smart. Be as smart as that snake. Be as smart as that serpent. But also be harmless. Literally, the word for harmless means unmixed. Unmixed. In other words, it has integrity. It's just one thing, right? So figuratively, it means innocent. It can mean simple. It can mean sincere. It can mean straightforward. So as you look at all the possible meanings of those words... And you look at the imagery between the two animals that Jesus sets up in his analogy here, his metaphor. You see that this is the perfect description of the day-to-day balance that we need to strike in our lives in order to move through life with our feet in kingdom, our hearts in kingdom, but our heads still dealing with navigating through the terrain and dealing with the day-to-day details that we need to get through. Maybe today, instead of snakes and, and uh, doves, maybe we'd use dogs and cats. How about that? You know? The cat is the one that's back there just kind of looking at you from high up on its perch, and you don't know what it's thinking. It's discreet, you know? And the dog is there just jumping around with his tan hanging out, you know? Dogs and cats. Maybe that's the balance that we're looking for. Jesus exemplifies this. Remember when he was trying to be, when the Pharisees tried to box him into a corner, you know, should we have to pay poll taxes to the romans and this is a big political football this is boxing jesus into a corner and he comes up with this amazing retort show me the coin render the things that are to see, that are of caesar's to caesar but the things of god's to god and he's smart he's thoughtful He turns the tables on them because he is moving through life on both planes simultaneously. Completely childlike, able to just jump right into a child's world, roll around in the dirt and give him a horseback ride, and then turn around and have the kind of intellectual riposte to these learned scholars and lawyers of the faith as to dumbfound them. This is the kind of balance we're talking about. Now, maybe we won't go to the extreme poles that Jesus does in our lives, but we need to exemplify the same thing. Jesus is saying that this balance that we have, that he has, that he's showing us, that he's talking to us about as he sends his disciples out, is something that we can do as well. But we're going to have to think about this for a little bit. There's a quote that I've always heard, and it's attributed to a whole bunch of people, and no one knows exactly who, says it, who said it, but uh, it goes like this. I would like to challenge you to a battle of wits, but I see you are unarmed. <laughs> we don't know who said it, but it's pretty good, wouldn't you say? You know, I see you're... Un- you know what? This is the probably illustrates the problem perfectly. Who today is teaching critical thinking anymore? Who today is teaching logic? Who's teaching any kind of reasoning skills? The schools aren't doing it. My gosh, it's just amazing how kids are getting out of college without basic, you know, not only logic and reasoning skills, but writing skills, the ability to do basic math. Our, 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 our foundation, our principles are getting lost here. So it's lost in the schools. I watch some of these, these uh, news programs, news quote-unquote, and I'm watching the people that are getting paid to talk nationally, worldwide. And they don't seem to have any more reasoning or logic skills than anybody else. It is amazing the, the complete vacuousness of the arguments that I hear. And when they're challenged, if there is anybody on the interviewer side who has, a, has a, you know, any kind of skills, and they're challenged they just keep saying the same thing over and over again, or they completely dodge, or they come up with some other thing. There is no line of thought. There is no rationale. There is no ability to reason. And this is really a problem in our society. It's all coming down to just emotional persuasion, just ratcheting up emotions, getting people all completely worked up. And so our discourse in politics, but also our discourse in religion, in socioeconomics, in eco-science, has become completely polarized and completely dogmatic. There is no proof anymore toward the positions that many people are taking. It's just assumed to be true, wished to be true, I don't know, but there is just a dogmatic approach. This is true because it is stated as such and for no other reason. When these people talk, whether they're politicians or whether they're newscasters or whether they're pastors, you've got to watch pastors, I'm telling you right now. They're pulling out every logical fallacy in the book. And I don't know if you've ever heard of logical fallacies, especially informal fallacies. I know the lawyer in the room here has because they study this stuff for lunch, right? You know, you've got to know this stuff. They're pulling out every logical fallacy. And one of the ones that is used so often is an appeal to authority, is what it's called. And this is where you claim an authority states your position, and because the authority said it, therefore it must be true. But for no other reason, it doesn't prove anything. It's just you appeal to this authority. And of course, the ultimate authority is God. And so we, in religious circles, often appeal to God. And if not God directly through our interpretation of a scriptural passage speaking for God, it's through what we understand about God's nature, through the mercy and compassion that we attribute to God, that the mercy and compassion is the authority that we claim to in order to lay out whatever our principles, whatever our premise needs to be, wants to be. And so using God and God's nature as interpreted to us to prove our arguments We need to become shrewd. We need to become as shrewd as snakes. We need to get smart here. Because society is coarsening. Society is getting worse. The level of discourse is dropping all the time. And we need to be able to, at the same time, move through and make good decisions. It is so easy to get swayed if we don't have principles in place. If we don't have some kind of logical reasoning in place. So that when we hear these arguments, we know that there's something wrong. We know that there's a fallacy there. And we can come back to what is really true. But people are getting swayed all over the place. And this is what I wanted to talk about this morning. How can we do exactly what Jesus said, to become as shrewd as snakes while we're balancing our innocence and our straightforwardness and our guilelessness? How can we do this? I wanted to read a passage from uh, a writer that I normally agree with. And uh, in this case, I don't. But I wanted to to read through this so that we can kind of see what he's doing and, and see how this kind of, this way of approaching arguments, this way of approaching articles can help us to be able to stay on the beam that I think Jesus is trying to keep us on. Um, This writer writes that Paul, Paul of Tarsus, Paul who wrote the epistles, had a concrete missionary strategy of building living communities able to produce a visible and believable message. Yet for centuries we've interpreted his message as if he is speaking about individuals being privately saved. This has made Paul seem more like a mere moralist than the mystic that he is. Mystics tend to see things in holes rather than getting preoccupied with the parts. Okay, so far so good. You know, obviously this is taking a very different look at Paul than many of us had, but he is looking at him from a mystical point of view. Taking that as an intro, he now comes to his conclusion. Paul believes that corporate evil can only become or be confronted with corporate good. All right? That's his main premise in this article. Corporate evil, evil on a macro scale, evil that's institutionalized, can only be overcome or confronted by good that is macro, good that is institutionalized. For Paul, community is a living organism that communicates the gospel message. Paul, like Jesus, wants to change culture here, not just send people away to a far-off heaven. Okay, so that's his main point. I don't know if it really makes a lot of sense to you or impacts you the way it's impacting me. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is doing at all. Now, he's using an appeal to Paul. He's using his interpretation of Paul's letters. He's using his interpretation of Jesus' message to come to these conclusions. But if Jesus and Paul both want to change the culture, if they want to confront corporate evil with corporate good in a top down sort of way, so that we need to institutionalize all this, we need to really grow this thing, then why in the world did Paul tell slaves to just remain slaves? Just be good slaves, he told them. Why did Paul tell women who were marginalized in the first century society in the Eastern Mediterranean? Why did he tell them to stay marginalized? Don't speak unless you're spoken to and keep your head covered and don't ever teach a man. All these things that are just rankling women today about Paul's letters. Why did he tell women to stay marginalized? Why did he tell married people that if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to leave, doesn't want to leave, just keep the unbeliever in your house? even though you believe this, just keep the status quo. And if you're not married, keep the status quo. I mean, that seems to be Paul's message throughout so much. Keep the status quo. Don't change anything. Well, if he wants to change the culture, wouldn't he be banging up against all of these practices? Paul just says, keep the status quo. These things in the macro, these things in the institutional area, hang on, just hang on. Because something's happening interiorly, really, is the thrust of the message. And if Jesus wants to change culture here, then why does he advocate maintaining respect for both Roman and Jewish law? Like I just said when he was asked, should we have to pay poll taxes to these Roman occupiers, these cruel usurpers of our national sovereignty? And he says, yeah, in essence. Whose likeness is this? Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We see him doing the same thing when it comes to Jewish law. I'm going back to Roman law. The Romans had the ability to commandeer your vehicle, commandeer you, and make you go a certain distance along any road. And Jesus says, hey, if you get commandeered, don't just go one mile, go the second mile as well. He's upping the ante of continuing to have his people work with the Roman oppressors. Jesus himself kept all of the ritual purity codes and all of the other rituals of the Jewish faith. He never bucked those. When he's being betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the, to the cross, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts the ear off one of the servants of the high priest. And Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he heals the ear. Every opportunity that Jesus had to go big time, to go macro, to go top to bottom, he pushes it away. Every time he is asked to weigh in on a way of starting to destabilize Roman power in the region, he backs away. Does this sound like someone who wants to change the culture here? See, I don't think Jesus was ever taking a top-down corporate approach to his ministry and to his teaching. Changing culture wasn't his direct objective. I'm sure it was a secondary objective, but he was working on an interior revolution. He was working on a way for us to be able to move in new ways, a revolution of an inward attitude, a relationship that he called kingdom. And of course his followers misunderstood kingdom. They thought it was the kind of kingdom that would overflow and replace the Roman occupation. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is something completely different. My kingdom looks like this child right here. It is the opposite of what you think it is if you're trying to take a top-to-bottom approach. It doesn't work that way. The revolution of this inward attitude in effect is really what Jesus is saying the only way that you can change culture. You're not going to change it from the top down. You're not going to be able to ride in on a horse and change the culture whole cloth and force people to abide by a new way of living life. But what you can do is turn enough individual heartlights on. Change them from the inside out. So that they become the leaven, which is the 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 image that Jesus and Paul both use. The leaven that then infects the whole loaf. It works from the bottom up. It works from the inside out. It works from the back to the front. It's a completely different way of revolutionizing the way that we work. But Jesus worked in the micro. He worked with individuals. He was trying to turn those heart lights on change individual attitudes that eventually could change the culture in which they lived. Now this writer has definite political and social views, just ask him. And he sees scripture, he sees Jesus, he sees Paul as affirming those political views. Now for us, being shrewd means that we have to be able to see past whatever axes we may have grinding someone else's, uh, someone that we respect, someone that we we listen to, but to look and see, are they pulling us off in another direction that's going to take us further and further from kingdom? We need to know that if we want to stay on the beam here. Being shrewd means saying past what we want to be true, what another person wants to be true, and seeing all the way to what really is true, what is really consistent with what Jesus said, with what he taught, with what he lived. And this is really hard when it's our own views that we need to deal with. We need to be shrewd enough to see this within ourselves, our own views. I confess to you, I might be doing the same thing now, and you've got to be shrewd enough to see through me, you know? Is this something I want to be true, or is this something that Jesus is really putting out there? And I hope that one thing that you always get here at The Effect is enough information, enough of a there-there, to be able to go back and do your own study. Take a look. Find out what you're convinced of. I can only tell you what I'm convinced of, which is what I'm doing right now. And I am absolutely convinced that Jesus is always working from the inside out and the bottom up. That he was not a social revolutionary trying to change culture on the institutional level, but trying to change hearts on the individual level. Now, in my defense, I don't really have a political axe to grind here. I have my own views, but I don't care to push them on you. And if we're really going to find something that is absolutely true, that Jesus said, then it's going to be true for everyone. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter where you are on the religious spectrum, no matter what you believe about global warming, it won't matter. Because Jesus' message will always be true. It will always guide us in the direction that he's trying to get us to go. Now, continuing on with this article, the writer says, Paul uses primitive yet powerful words for the negative, negative side of corporations, institutions, and nations. He calls them thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, from Colossians 1.16. These are not bad angels, quote-unquote, as the way that they are normally interpreted, as much as collective attitudes that are almost impossible to break, Because these attitudes are so widely shared as mass consciousness. It's the way we're programmed to think. They no longer look like evil and are hard to resist because we're so familiar with them. Now he's doing a little midrash here. Remember we talked about midrash going into the metaphorical and taking something from the surface level meaning that everyone has always understood that thrones and powers and principalities were angels that were fighting against in the spiritual realm and he says no metaphorically they are the bad side of these institutions in our life. Now here's a conclusion he's going to draw from this interpretation. He says murder is bad but war is good. Greedy people are bad but capitalism is going to save the world. Ambition and pride are supposedly major sins but not the good old USA. Do you see the problem? Well, Yeah I do see the problem but not in the same way he sees the problem. He says that these memes, if you will, these these corporate mass attitudes are sending us down this path where murder is understood as bad, but war is understood as good. Now just take that one there. Murder is bad, war is good. First of all, who among us would say that war is good? This is another informal fallacy. It's called a straw man argument. I don't know if you've ever heard that one before. This is where you... you you put up the the images you put up a straw man that's really easy to knock back down again so you build up this, this, uh, this line and then you dismantle it but what you're putting in the words of your opponent's mouth is not what they ever said murder is bad war is good but we never said war is good we don't understand that war is good we know that war is bad however is war always the greatest evil This is a question that we have to ask ourselves. Is there ever a time to fight? Or is there never a time to fight? And is what the soldier does on the battlefield the same as murder, which is understood as killing with malice and forethought? It's interesting that the Ten Commandments don't say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. There's a differentiation made between the two verbs. Now this isn't something that we're going to solve here today. But I hope you'll start to think about it. It is so easy, so facile just to say, you know, war is always bad. Make love, not war. But what is the right thing to do when there is true oppression? What was the right thing to do when Hitler was ravaging Western Europe? Was it the right thing to fight? Or should there have been, I suppose war is always the last option. But is it a valid option is war always evil, or is it just, I guess put it this way, this brings us into the kind of space where there's always a clear choice between good and evil. But there isn't in real life just a clear choice between good and bad, is there? Most often the choices present as between better and worse, don't they? We're choosing lesser of evils. We're choosing things that we believe are going to um, ultimately create the greatest good. That's what we're trying to do. And so an argument set up this way is really difficult. It's setting up a false equivalence between murder and war. Is war the same as murder? Well, if you answer yes, well, then this makes sense to you. If the answer is something more complicated, then maybe it doesn't. But you see where I'm going with this? Our morality, our system of ethics the way that we live and choose and move through life, we say comes from Jesus. Jesus is our Savior, our Master, and our Guide. But what is Jesus really saying? This writer says Jesus is saying this, but is that what Jesus is saying? I have a quote here from William Penn. You know William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania? He was an English real estate entrepreneur, is the way that he is uh, is put, But he was given a huge grant of land from King Charles II and comprised most of Pennsylvania and most of Delaware. <clears throat> and so he came and he had converted to Quaker, the Quaker faith. And so he, was, he also established the Quaker faith in this country as well. <coughs> and if you know anything about the Quakers, you know that they are very literal readers of the scripture. They were pacifists because Jesus said, turn the other cheek if someone strikes you don't strike back, turn the other cheek. Jesus also said, don't ever swear an oath. And so they wouldn't swear an oath, which means they could never serve on a jury. They couldn't serve in a court because they wouldn't swear an oath. They couldn't serve in the military because they couldn't, wouldn't swear the oath. Plus they wouldn't fight. And so this type of thinking leads to a quote, a good end cannot purify evil means, nor must we ever do evil so that good may come of it. But once again, that's assuming that the choices are clearly between good and evil. And this second quote that comes from one of my favorite movies, The Kingdom of Heaven, there will be a day when you will wish you had done a little evil to do a greater good. Each of us has to decide which of these acts absolutely make sense. I mean, you've heard me say in here probably a million times that the means we use must match the ends that we seek, Right? So that seems to go with the first quote more. But what if the little evil that we are choosing is not evil in the sense that it's anything but the only path that we can see to the greater good? What do we do then? How do we go about this? Over and over again, we've asked the rhetorical question in here. Is lying always wrong? Well, it's always unlawful, but is it always wrong? And the answer is no. It's not always wrong because the situation determines whether the lie or the truth serves the greater good, protects and preserves life, protects and preserves relationship. Right? The classic, if you're in 1940s Germany and you've got Jews in the attic and the Gestapo's at your door, what's the right answer? It's clear to us in a situation like that. Honey, does this dress make me look fat? What's the right answer? (laughs) Like it or not, our ethics are situational. We can't just go by what is lawful or not. How do we choose what is good and what is evil? Do we choose it just based on whether it's lawful or not? That's going to lead us into all sorts of absurdities. Do we choose it on the basis of what is going to create the greatest good? Yeah, that's a difficult one, too. And it's fraught with lots of peril. And there's always unintended consequences. But there's no guarantees in life. He'll never have enough information to make a completely risk-free decision ever. So how do we go about this? This is what we're trying to figure out. How does this work? How does Jesus take us the places that he's trying to take us? You know. What often is missing in all of these discussions like this from my point of view Is how the context of micro and macro changes the way we apply love. Changes the way love is applied in any given situation. Because in the group, love has to look like justice. If there's no justice in a group, the group disintegrates. And the greater good is destroyed without just balancing the scales of equality and justice. But in the micro, in one-on-one situations, love looks like mercy and compassion every time. Because if it doesn't, in the micro, in a one-on-one relationship, if we're not actively unbalancing the scales of justice in favor of the beloved, then what the heck are we doing? How could that possibly be a love relationship? See, Jesus is schooling us. He's taking us to school if we will let him, if we'll see what he's trying to do on how to be shrewd in life by understanding these micro and macro shifts. If we can't move love between the micro and the macro as we move in and out, we're never going to understand how it is that we can apply love in all these situations and get where we need to go, not fall into intolerance or codependency on the opposite side, but really move through in a balanced way. Take a look at these passages. They're on your uh, bulletins, and I'm sure uh, Brandon is scrambling to put them up on the overheads. Jesus says, You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me, Matthew 26. Matthew 22, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Mark 10, sell all you have and give to the poor. Matthew 5, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now that would be popular, wouldn't it? And everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Just for being angry, just for having an angry thought in your head. And finally, at Matthew 5.39, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. The rest of this is just a little passage from my book, The Fifth Way. How was it compassionate for Yeshua to offhandedly tell us that poverty will always be with us in response to his followers' lecture on the needs of the poor? How was it merciful that we should continue to pay taxes to a cruel and oppressive government? At the same time, how is it fair to tell someone to sell all he had earned just to give to the poor, who will always be with us anyway? And if you're being sued, where's the justice in being told to surrender more than is required, willingly and without complaint, to the point you have nothing left and are standing naked in public? That was the play on words there. To give your tunic and your coat means you basically had nothing left. And what kind of moral code demands judicial condemnation for simply being angry with a brother, yet turns around and says not to resist an evil person. When struck once, simply wait to be struck again. Taken at face value, the simple meaning of these sayings seem to make no moral sense to find the precepts of both justice and mercy. And again, we need new ears to hear. Take a look at each one of these really quickly. You'll always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What's the context of this? Jesus is having dinner with some of his friends and Mary comes and she is in this flush of, of relationship and connection with Jesus. She takes an expensive jar of perfume and breaks it over his feet and just anoints him and, and drying his feet with her hair and Judas is incensed because he said this was an expensive bottle. You know, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Whereupon Jesus turns to him and tells him a lot of other things at the same time, but eventually says, "Why are you bothering this woman? You know, You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me." What is Jesus doing here? The first thing he does is he starts in the macro context. "You're always going to have the poor with you. Isn't that true? Abstract poverty out there someplace, it's always going to exist. There's always going to be people who have more and people who have less. It's always been that way. As far as anyone can tell, it's always going to be that way. But what do we do when we fixate on the abstract? Like Mother Teresa said, it's a lot easier to feed someone half a world away than it is to just be present to the person in your own house. We use those abstract causes. We use those macro issues as an excuse not to dig in right where we are right now with the face that's right in front of us. And Jesus says, you don't use these abstract issues as an excuse not to do what is compassionate right here and right now. He takes the macro and immediately moves it into the micro. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. I'm not always going to be here. And so he's trying to get them to see that connection and even more than that i think he's what he's saying to them is that macro poverty this abstract issue is never going to be overcome in the macro it's going to be overcome when enough individuals take care of the person in need right in front of them if every hand was holding a hand who would be handholdless right if we did that again it's from the bottom up it's not from the top down these top-down issues, they're, they're tilting at windmills. We're not going to change them, but we can change this. What do we really have control over? Poverty? Or our ability to choose the compassionate thing for the poor person right in front of us right now, which Jesus says, at this moment, it's me. <laughs> I'm the one who needs ministering to. And thank God Mary was there, willing to spend the perfume for my sake. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God the things that are God. God's. Jesus is being boxed into a corner here, asked in public whether Jews had to pay the poll tax to the hated Romans. You know. They're saying either way he answers, he's going to be in big trouble. He's going to be in trouble with the people or he's going to be in trouble with the Roman authorities. But Jesus is too smart. And what does he do at the same time? He starts with the macro and he immediately shifts it to the micro. Whose likeness is on this coin? Give me the coin for the poll tax. Whose likeness? Uh, Caesar's? Okay. Then render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Macro. Keep playing the game. Keep answering to that tune. But render to God the things that are God's. Because inside is perfect freedom. No matter how oppressed we are in the macro, Our interior life can be completely free if we are tending to those details. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. That the only thing over which we really have control is our own reflection of the things of God. The things that are God's. Which is unity. Connection. this sense of of meaning and purpose that comes from unity and connection. And the only way that the the powers du jure, the evil, cruel emperors are going to be brought low anyway It's from the bottom up. When enough people find their interior freedom, that they find ways to follow that interior voice, starting with the macro, moving immediately to the micro. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Ah. Oh, I missed one. Sell all you have and give to the poor. This is already an intensely micro-statement. If we try to macroize this statement, if we try to generalize it, if we're saying in essence that there's something wrong with material wealth, with physical riches, then we're missing the whole point of what Jesus is saying. This is intensely personal. He is talking to an individual rich young man who is clinging on, who is identified by his wealth and cannot move any further in the kingdom and knows it. He knows something is wrong. He comes to Jesus and asks him. And Jesus is saying, when you can let go of that, when you can stop clinging, he really doesn't even have to divest himself of all his wealth. He just has to interiorly let go of the identification and the reliance on those things. And so we can't take a statement that is intensely micro and change it into macro. We're going to do violence to what Jesus is trying to tell us. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, your shirt, let them have your coat also. (laughs) You know, in the macro, everyone was trying to just put that legal fig leaf on. Trying to just make sure that they had everything good enough so that they follow the purity codes and they were able to do what they needed to do. But once again, Jesus is taking a macro legal argument and saying in the micro... It's all about relationship. Anybody who goes to court already loses. Wouldn't you say so? Maybe not. (laughs) The counselor says, maybe not. On the individual relationship level, as soon as you go to court, you've already lost. Whether you win or lose the injunction, whether you win or lose the suit, you've lost the relationship. Jesus is saying, can you settle out of court? Can you settle in a way that the relationship is preserved? You know, This is the same thing as saying that when you have just an angry thought, you're already guilty because the relationship is already gone. The relationship is compromised. Jesus is talking about this. And so he takes the ma- macro and he brings it right to the micro. He's showing us love looks like this in the court system. It looks like justice. But here in relationship, it looks like this. Don't just go the one mile, go the second mile. If he wants your shirt, give him your coat as well. If he wants to borrow from you, give give to him. These are not the kind of macro statements that are going to keep our households running well. But they're talking about interior attitudes and a desire and a drive to make every relationship as good as it can possibly be. This is the distinction that Jesus is trying to get across to us. And finally, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This is not a call to pacifism. What Jesus is talking about here in the Psalms, you see them talking about heaping burning coals on the heads of your enemies. This is a, a Jewish idiom that literally means to kill them with kindness, to destroy your enemies by turning them into friends. That's what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't say you sit there and take abuse. He's not saying that anyone's suffering from domestic violence that you have to keep taking. It. Absolutely not. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return tit for tat. Don't let the small injustices and insults in, in, that come to you to escalate to the point that relationship is lost. Jesus is schooling us how to be shrewd as snakes. How to be able to make choices as we move through life that is so Confusing sometimes. And so fraught with all these arguments. When Jesus is talking in Matthew 5, you've heard it of old said, and he gives the macro old tradition or the Torah law. But he says, even there, you have to see through it to see how that plays out, how that works in what I'm calling kingdom. How that works out if you're really going to live in complete freedom, if you're really going to live with the quality of life that it's fully present, fully part of each other in God's presence. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. It's all about this balance. Living in the macro and the micro simultaneously between heaven and earth, that's what our lives are like. We have to be able to shift back and forth. We have to be able to be present to both. But at the same time, we realize that even as we are part of the macro, How do we really experience it? Isn't it one face at a time? Isn't it one conversation at a time? Even when we're part of the macro, we still experience it day to day on the micro. That's why Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom. Seek first God's righteousness. In other words, seek first to connect in the micro with what love looks like in the micro. And then all else will be added to you. We really don't have to deal with the macro as an abstract issue. All we have to do is show up to the face that's right in front of us and deal with them as love demands in the micro with mercy and compassion. And we will look simultaneously like law to the macro. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Everything in the macro will change only if and unless and until Enough people are living kingdom in the micro in that community. They are the leaven, they are the tipping point that will take us into a changed society, a changed culture. But that's almost a byproduct, I think, is what Jesus is saying. Not directly after that. Focus on the macro first. I'm sorry, focus on the micro first, because what happens when we focus on the macro? We start sounding like the talking heads on television, don't we? The macro always divides us. The intellectual always divides us. And we start sounding really ugly on Facebook and Twitter, and we're off to the races if we focus on the macro. But to come back to the micro changes everything, because we already and always have known how to live in the micro, how to choose in the micro. And the question then becomes, can that be enough for us? One final passage from The Fifth Way. Yeshua's genius and revolution was to begin the process of balancing spiritual relationship between macro and micro, to know God as both macro king and micro abba, daddy, into whose lap we can crawl, to begin to live our daily lives shifting seamlessly between these two great contexts in order to bring maximum shalom, peace, health, wellness, security, to all our relationships. The great social issues of our time, or any time, always straddle the micro and the macro. It's not dualistic either-or choices, but a unified both-and, lying at the heart of a desire for the highest good. Justice and mercy must remain on their respective thrones as long as we live between heaven and earth and kingdom demands that we see as much. What Yeshua is trying to show us is that micro and macro are intertwined in such a way that they can both successfully be ne- negotiated as a unified whole. He's trying to show us that the apparent conflict between mercy and justice and the harsh ways that individuals in groups must sometimes be treated in order to maintain the greatest shalom for all exist only in the absence of kingdom. Once kingdom is entered, micro and macro, mercy and justice become one, just as God is one. In the balanced view of Yeshua, which was not new, but a fulfillment of the original intent of the ancient law, the good of the individual and the good of the group are not in conflict. Seeking first the kingdom by living out mercy and compassion in the micro simultaneously fulfills the intent of the macro law. When viewed from the inside out, downside up, and backside front, how each individual treats every other individual in the micro has everything to do with the quality of life in the macro. And when we graduate from macro to micro, we are awarded the freedom to act without fear, to fearlessly live out our compassion and love for our neighbors without the need for a law to obey. We are also awarded the first breath of a chance to bring shalom to our personal relationships, which may then bring the next breath of hope that our shalom will break forth into our communities at large in the macro. The hope and promise that the kingdom within will become the kingdom among and in the midst lay hiding in plain sight, in the space between the micro and macro, between heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, it's confusing sometimes. Everyone is yammering at us from all directions, all with something to sell, all with something to convince us of, persuade us, brainwash us. Help us to become shrewd enough, smart enough, thoughtful enough, To be able to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on your precepts as well as we can know them right now, and hope that we'll know them better tomorrow so that we can keep moving in your direction toward kingdom, so we can make the choices that we need to make the heart wrenching ones, the difficult ones, as well as the simple ones, that will always be leading in your direction, always moving in kingdom. Help us to bring a sense of, I guess, holy rationale to our relationships and to the communities in which we live. Help us be the leaven that starts to diffuse the arguments and bring a greater sense of connection and community. We want to be that. Help us, Father. Thank you for giving us everything that you could possibly give us again. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ah, Hey! (laughs) Did I bite off more than I could chew? I'm not sure. Uh. Let's all stand.